Hey, welcome to episode number 34 of More Than Bread. My name is Dan Nold. I'm a pastor, your Bible reader, and host for this podcast, More Than Bread. In this episode, you'll hear me read some fairly famous, at least in church circles, not quite as famous as John 3.16, but, but a close cousin, fairly famous words about Scripture from 2 Timothy 3.16. Here's what Paul writes. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed by His Spirit. And all Scripture is useful, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, so that we can be thoroughly equipped. And that word equipped, it's not just about teaching, about learning, about pouring instruction into someone's mind. The word equipped was also used to describe what fishermen would do with their nets before they went fishing. They would mend them, retie them, make sure they were strong and ready to catch fish. Fish, Scripture is good for that. And we need more than bread if we want to find life. In this episode, we're reading and pondering the books of First and Second Timothy. Unlike most of Paul's other letters, these two are written to a solitary person. He wrote the first letter while Paul wrote the first letter while he was on a mission trip that isn't recorded in Scripture sometime between his first and final imprisonment in Rome. But the second letter is written while Paul is in prison the final time, likely awaiting execution. The first letter gives advice on how to deal with difficulties in the church of Ephesus. That's where Timothy was a leader. Ephesus was a big gun leader kind of church. The apostle John was there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And Timothy, this young guy who's trying to follow Paul's lead and help lead the church at Ephesus. Some of Paul's advice is related to false teachers, but much of it just centered on the fact that the true gospel, when it's active in our lives, will bring about change in our lives. The gospel leads to a certain kind of living, or it's not the gospel. Paul would say there is no separation between what we believe and how we behave. If what we say we believe doesn't line up, doesn't shape how we behave, we don't really believe it. The second letter, and you'll hear this as I read it, is far more personal. Uh, Kind of Paul's final words to a good friend, someone he was coaching, someone, uh, a young man whom he believed in. So let's take a look at 1 and 2 Timothy. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. We'll start with 1 Timothy chapter 1. This letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by the command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, who gives us hope. I'm writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations, which don't help people live a life of faith in God. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. i got to stop there right away because this is one of those verses that is so simple and so profound and so all-shaping and all-encompassing. Listen again to what Paul says. He says, the purpose of my instruction, the goal of my instruction is that you would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart. Not that you will know more but that you'll be filled with love. Do you understand? If we're not growing in our capacity to love people year by year by year, day by day, month by month, if we're not growing, then the goal of Paul's instruction, the goal of Christian education is is all messed up. Verse 6, Paul says, but some people have missed this whole point. 
They've turned away from these things and they spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. We know that the law is good when used correctly, for the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their mother or father or commit other murders. The the laws for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with a faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier. May they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Cling to your faith in Christ. Keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples. I threw them out and handed them over to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme God. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. Before I go on, let me just hit that again. Pray for kings and all those in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Now, now listen to me. The, Paul is not suggesting that they pray that kings and authorities will just leave them alone so they can live peaceful and quiet lives. What is the only way that they can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity? It's that more and more and more people would come to follow Christ. That's why he says in verse 3, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. Continuing on in verse 6, He, Jesus, gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I've been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. 
Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. And before I continue on to 1 Timothy chapter 3, let me just say I understand there are words in there that many of us kind of rebel against and push back against. And, and, and in our culture, our society, and, and not just our culture, our society, in Scripture, where, where Paul himself, himself says there's no longer Jew or Greek, male nor female. Paul elevates, Jesus elevates. For the culture that they were in in that day, they elevated the role and the value of, of women. And so we need to make sure that we understand what's being said here by Paul in light of that. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. So a church leader must be a a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud, and the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons must be well-respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. They must be committed to the mystery of the faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience. Before they are appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives must be respected and must not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything they do. A deacon must be faithful to his wife, and he must manage his children and household well. Those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and will have increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. I'm writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last time some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. They will say it is wrong to be married and wrong to eat certain foods, but God created those foods to be eaten with thanks by faithful people who know the truth. Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. For we know it is made acceptable by the word of God in prayer. If you explain these things to the brothers and sisters, Timothy, you will be a worthy servant of Christ Jesus, one who is nourished by the message of faith and the good teaching you have followed. Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. 
This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. This is why we work hard and continue to struggle for our hope is in the living God who is the Savior of all people and particularly of all believers. Teach these things. Insist that everyone learn them. Don't let anyone think less of you because you're young. Be an example to all the believers in what you say and the way you live and your love, your faith, and your purity. Until I get there, focus on reading the scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers and teaching them. Do not neglect the spiritual gift you received through the prophecy spoken over you when the elders of the church laid their hands on you. Give your complete attention to these matters. Throw yourself into your tasks so that everyone will see your progress. Keep a close watch on how you live and your teaching. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully as you would to your own father. Talk to younger men as you would to your own brothers. Treat older women as you would your mother, and treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. Take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. Now a true widow, a woman who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. She prays night and day asking God for his help. But the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead even while she lives. Give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. A widow who is put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and was faithful to her husband. She must be well respected by everyone because of the good she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? The younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ and they will want to remarry. Then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. And if they're on the list, they will learn to be lazy and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's businesses and talking about things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger widows to marry again, have children, and take care of their own homes. Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them, for I'm afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. If a woman who is a believer has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church. Then the church can care for the widows who are truly alone. Elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. And in another place, those who work deserve their pay. Do not listen to an accusation against an elder unless it is confirmed by two or three witnesses. Those who sin should be reprimanded, reprimanded in front of the whole church. This will serve as a strong warning to others. I solemnly command you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the highest angels to obey these instructions without taking sides or showing favoritism to anyone. Never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't drink only water. You ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you are sick so often. Remember the sins of some people are obvious, leading them to certain judgment, but there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. In the same way, the good deeds of some people are obvious, and the good deeds done in secret will someday come to light. 
First Timothy chapter 6. All slaves should so, show full respect for their masters, so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. If the masters are believers, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder, because their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life, and anyone who teaches something different is arrogant or lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. And this stirs up arguments, ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they've turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a a way to become wealthy. And yet, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Let me say that over again. And yet, true godliness with contentment, adding contentment to true godliness, is in itself great wealth. Verse 7. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. We can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich, he's not saying rich people. He's saying if your desire is a longing, if your heart has a longing to be rich, verse 9, people who long to be rich fall into temptation. And they're trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And again, Hear what he's saying. He's not saying, Paul is not saying money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the passion. It's the, it's the, the tenor of your heart, the pursuit of your heart, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith, pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all these evil things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. And I charge you before God, who gives life to all, and before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, that you obey this command without wavering. Then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. For at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. He alone can never die, and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever. Amen. Teach those, Paul continues in verse 17, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. And by doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Paul is saying here, my words, that... that, that uh, if, if we do good with what we have, if we're rich in good works, if we're generous to those in need, if we're always ready to share with others, that what we're actually doing is we're storing up treasure in heaven, a good foundation for the future. We're sending it on ahead. Listen to me. This is the only way that you can send it on ahead. Everybody says you can't take it with you. I'm telling you, you can, but only as we are rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share. 
Verse 20, Timothy, guard what God has entrusted you. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from the faith by following such foolishness. May God's grace be with you all. And then Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, starting in chapter 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I've been sent out to tell others about the life he has promised through faith in Christ Jesus. And I'm writing to you, Timothy, my dear son. And remember, my words as I introduce Timothy, this letter is written probably while Paul is in prison, maybe thinking that this is the last time he's going to have an opportunity to send a message to Timothy. It's kind of his last words to his friend, his the, the, the guy that he's coaching, the, the younger one who's going to take over you know, the, the mission when Paul leaves. So it becomes a lot more personal. I'm writing to Timothy, my dear son, verse 2. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. Timothy, I thank God for you. The God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors did, night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I long to see you again, for I remember your tears as we parted, and I will be filled with joy when we are together again. I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I know that that same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and he called us to live a holy life. He, he did this not because we deserve it, but because this was his plan from before the beginning of time to, to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. That's why I'm suffering here in prison. But I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust. And I'm sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. I love that verse. I think we get from it the hymn, the old hymn, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. What, a, what a, an amazing verse. I'm, I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust. I'm sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me a pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. As you know, everyone from the province of Asia has deserted me, even Figlius and Hermogenes. May the Lord show special kindness to Onesiphorus and all his family because he often visited and encouraged me. He was never ashamed of me because I was in chains. When he came to Rome, he searched everywhere until he found me. May the Lord show him special kindness on the day of Christ's return. And you know very well how helpful he was in Ephesus. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
Timothy, my dear son, be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. You've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. And my words, this is the, this is the process of discipleship. Learn what, what others teach you and then pass that on to others who can teach others. We, we need to continue this process of, of seeing people become apprentices of Jesus. Verse 3, endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them, and athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules, and hardworking farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labor. Think about what I'm saying. The Lord will help you understand all these things. Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. And because I preach this good news, I'm suffering. I've been chained like a criminal, but the word of God cannot be changed. You know, in verse 8 um, of, of this chapter, Paul gives one of the most succinct descriptions of the gospel that there is. Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, so he's a real person, descended from real people, but he was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. <laughs> And because, verse 9, I preach this good news, I'm suffering, I've been chained like a criminal, but the word of God cannot be chained. So I'm willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. This is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Remind everyone about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. Work hard so that you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one that does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. This kind of talk spreads like cancer, as in the case of Hymenaeus and Philetus. They've left the path of truth, claiming that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. In this way, they've turned some people away from the faith. But God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his, and all who belong to the Lord must turn away from evil. In a wealthy home, some utensils are made of gold and silver, and some are made of wood and clay. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions, and the cheap ones are for everyday use. If you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean, and you'll be ready for the master to use you for every good work. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteous living faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. And again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Second, Second Timothy, excuse me, chapter 3. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. 
They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Oh my goodness. Verse 5 is, is, uh, is such a conviction. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. I, I know we would read these words and we think, it, you know, Paul's talking about the dangers of the last days and the people who are scoffing at God and boastful and proud. But I, I just wonder if that last part, if there's anything in that for us, they will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Verse 6, they are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following new teachings, but they're never able to understand the truth. These teachers oppose the truth just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith, but they won't get away with this for long. Someday everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as with Janus and Jambres. But you, Timothy... Certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You you know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You, you know how much persecution and suffering I've endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They'll deceive others and will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things I've taught you. You know they're true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they've given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead, when he comes to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. Be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They'll follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths, but you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Paul is simply saying in those words, I am going to finish well. What a, what a great goal for each and every one of us. Verse 9, Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. 
I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, be sure to bring the coat I left with Carpus at Troas. Also bring my books, especially my papers. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, but the Lord will judge him for what he has done. Be careful of him, for he fought against everything that we said. The first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and gave me strength so that I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear. And he rescued me from certain death. Yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, those living in the household of Anisphorus. Erastus stayed at Corinth and I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Ebulus sends you greetings, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. May the Lord be with your spirit, and may his grace be with all of you. I wrestled again with where to pause in First and Second Timothy. As always, there's so much good stuff. But I went back and forth between Paul's instructions on money and greed and generosity in First Timothy 6, and his challenge to pray first for all people in First Timothy 2. But if you need a, a spiritual butt-kicking about money and greed and generosity, make sure you linger a bit longer at 1 Timothy 6. But, but we're going to talk about 1 Timothy 2 and prayer. You know, at Calvary, we talk quite a bit about being Jesus apprentices. We want to be people who not only follow Jesus, but live and love like Jesus. And we cannot, listen to me, we cannot apprentice with Jesus without being sent on a mission. Jesus said to his disciples in the same way, he said actually to his father, in the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them, I give my disciples a mission in the world. Jesus has given us a mission. And what is our mission? Well, I think at its most simple, basic understanding, we're called to love our neighbors and introduce them to Jesus. And listen, you don't have to be a pastor in order to have a mission. You don't have to move to a foreign country to have a mission. You don't have to go to seminary or have a master's in anything other than Jesus. But you do have to be an apprentice of Christ in the process of being changed by Christ. You know, I think some of us have forgotten how much Jesus has changed our lives. We've grown familiar with him. We're trying to fit him into our empty moments rather than emptying out every moment for him to fill. And you know what I found? I found that when Jesus isn't changing my life, my front yard mission always feels unnatural, almost hypocritical. But when I'm hanging out with Jesus, man, it's hard to hold back. Nicole Cliff became a Christian on July 7, 2015, after what she called a very pleasant adult life of firm atheism. The idea of a benign deity who created and loved us, she writes, was obviously nonsense, and all that awaited us beyond the grave was joyful oblivion. I had no untapped, unanswered yearnings. But here's how she describes what happened to her. She said, first, I was worried about my child, and one time I said, please be with me to an empty room. It was embarrassing. I didn't know why I said it or to whom. I brushed it off and moved on. The situation resolved itself, and I didn't think about it again. But then I came across John Orberg's Christianity Today obituary for philosopher Dallas Willard. John's daughters are dear friends, and they've always struck me as sweetly deluded in their evangelical faith. So I read the article. Somebody once asked Dallas if he believed in total depravity. I believe in sufficient depravity, he responded. I believe that every human being is sufficiently depraved that when we get to heaven, no one will be able to say, I merited this. A a few minutes into reading that piece, she burst into tears. And later that day, she burst into tears again and again and again for days and days. 
brushing her teeth, falling asleep, feeding her kids. Even in the shower, she just kept bursting into tears. She read more Christian books, and every time she cried all over again. She emailed a Christian friend and asked if she could talk about Jesus. She writes, about an hour before I call, our call, I knew I believed in God. <laughs> Even worse, I was a Christian. I was crying constantly while thinking about Jesus because I'd begun to believe that Jesus really was who he said he was. So when my friend called, I told her awkwardly that I wanted to have a relationship with Jesus, and we prayed. And, and since then, I've been dunked by a pastor in the Pacific Ocean while shivering in a too small wetsuit. I've sung Be Thou My Vision and celebrated communion on a beach while weirded out Californians tiptoed around me. I pray. I continue to cry a lot. I read a news article that literally sank me to my knees at how broken this world is and yet how stubbornly resilient and joyful we can be in the face of that brokenness. My Christian conversion has granted me no simplicity, she wrote, has complicated all of my relationships, changed how I feel about money, messed up my reputation. Obviously, she writes, it's been very beautiful. What happened to Nicole? <laughs> She ran into Jesus. She encountered Christ. And, and nothing will change your life like an encounter with Jesus. See, the ultimate purpose of loving our neighbors is that they would have the ultimate privilege of encountering Jesus. They, they need him more than they need us. Introducing our neighbors to Jesus is, is our ultimate purpose, but it's not our ulterior motive. If someone doesn't want to know Jesus, we'll still love them because that's what Jesus would do if he lived in our neighborhood. And see, I don't know about you, but that's what I want. I want Jesus to move into my neighborhood. How does that happen? Would it surprise you to hear me say it starts with prayer? Pray first. That's our motto with Front Yard Missions. And, and that's Paul's instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. He says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I urge you, Paul says, I exhort you. That, this is a strong word. It's not I advise you. It's the word perikalio in the Greek. It's urge. And then first of all, in the Greek, this word is not first in line, but first is in importance. It's not my first request, but the activity which you should always do first. It should always be the priority, Paul is saying. I urge, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Paul's saying the first thing I want you to do is the most important thing you could do. I want you to pray. I want you to pray every way you know how for everyone you know. Pray first. Paul reiterates that same message in Colossians 4, verse 2, when he says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, now, being devoted to prayer doesn't mean that prayer is the only thing that you ever do. Just like being devoted to a job or a cause or a spouse, being devoted to Lynn doesn't mean all I ever do is hang out with Lynn. <laughs> that wouldn't be good for Lynn. <laughs> but if I'm devoted, there isn't much in my life that my devotion won't touch, right? It'll cause me to give myself to her in many different ways. It'll shape my decisions, shape my day come to my mind often. So being devoted to prayer doesn't mean that all we do is pray, but it does mean that our passion for prayer will shape our day, our decisions, our relationships. There will be a, a practice of prayer that looks like devo devotion. And, and that practice won't be the same for each of us, and it won't be the same in every season, but it will be noticeably different from not being devoted to prayer. Like if we only pray when there's a crisis, are we devoted? <laughs> If the only time our kids hear us pray is before we eat or when we're looking for a parking spot, 
Are we devoted? Paul says, I want you to pray for everybody, all people, including all those in authority over you. Listen again to 1 Timothy 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanks, all sorts of prayers be made for kings and all those in authority. He says he wants all people, God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And, and when, I, when I read that, I, I can't get away from this question. What if all means all? I mean, what if Paul isn't using all as a figure of speech? What if he's not being dramatic? What if he's not exaggerating for effect? What if all means all? What if make prayer your first of all, praying all sorts of prayer for all people because God wants all people to be saved is really what God wants? What if all means all? You say, well, I don't even know how we would do that. Well, there's around 540,000 people in, in the Center County and the, the six counties that surround us. And there's about 60,000 people who self-identify as evangelical Christians. If 60,000 evangelical Christians all prayed for nine people, eight on their hashtag and themselves, we would be praying for our all people. I mean, we can actually do that. It's not that it's impossible. It's just that it's difficult. I don't understand the mind of God. His ways are not our ways. I will tell you that that I can dis- I will not tell you that I can discern his timing. All, all I know is that you will be hard-pressed to find a great move of God's purposes that did not begin with the humble prayers of God's people. Do you ever think about this? After his death and resurrection, when Jesus went back to heaven, all he left behind was a prayer meeting. 120 people gathered in a hidden room off the grid, once in fear for their lives, now biting at the bit to dive into their mission. But before they go... They're gathering with one heart in prayer. And when they go out, stuff happens. Lives are changed. They were devoted to prayer. What would happen if we lived in a region saturated with prayer? What is keeping us from that? Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray for each and every person listening to the sound of my voice. Holy Spirit, would you stir up a passion for prayer in our hearts? Would you... Would you compel us? Would you make us want to live out Paul's instructions to Timothy that we would pray first for all people because you want all people to be saved? That we would pray first for all people because you want all people to be saved? Jesus, we thank you that you are an amazing God. We thank you that your heart is moved by prayer. And we apologize, God. We confess that that, that too often other things have been more important to us. But we pray in this season, in this time, for each one of us, even as individuals, that you would draw us to pray first with all sorts of prayers for all people because you're not willing that any should perish. Help us to love our neighbors like we've never loved our neighbors before. Would you move, God, in our neighborhoods, in our networks, in our friend groups? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.